I'm blessed because God has given me patience for a work that is a, a hopefully a, a, an apostolic work that serves the planting or already planted churches. Serves the planting of or already planted churches. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I, I found that you cannot do a, a work like that without patience. You can't do anything without patience, but there are other things that I do without patience. I don't do well, and I'm, you know, those are character flaws that the Lord is working with me on. But, but for this sort of work, the Lord has given me a level of patience I never had before. It's not a patience in tolerating people. It's not like I'm putting up with people. It's just the idea of, of progressing a work that has ideals that are biblical and are as far-reaching as I could possibly muster up in my vision. They're so idealistic, they're impossible without the Spirit. They cannot be achieved in human flesh. And I cannot live life sanely with those ideals without having the patience of the Lord at the same time. And it's an absolute gift of God. He's given me patience. It's a testimony to His grace. Because you cannot work out a work like this and be a part of it without patience. Because it takes time. Just like raising children. I don't see myself as raising children in planting churches and speaking to you all. But it's a similar patience because they're just not going to get it the first time. And it's ironic because the very values we esteem the most are the values that we tend to have the most challenge in working out in practical life. All of us deeply value worship. We all deeply value relationships. We all deeply value the level of consecration that Mike Lubo was speaking about earlier. And oftentimes those are the very things that we invest the least in. Because there's so many other demands from the outside, and there are plenty of demands from the inside. The appetites of our heart, in our flesh, that are contrary to the appetites of the Spirit, who also lives in our body. And these are at war with one another. So we, you know, we have to be focused, and we have to be serious with joy if we're going to see our ideals and our values come to pass. But we also need time to develop. Amen? That's part of what makes a grace community. That we're a family that understands we're at the one, on the one hand, we're going to sharpen one another toward the goal of corporate Christ-likeness and filling our city with the mystery of Christ. Amen. Amen. At the same time, yes, at the same time, we, we understand we're in a growth process. The tension of those two things it's sometimes difficult to navigate it, but navigate it we do in the Holy Spirit. Amen? The tension between grace, yeah, come on, we're family. Allow one another some breathing room and let's grow. While at the same time, hey, we're also committed to one another's development in Jesus. That takes patience. Just impart patience to us. The, the kind of patience that not only puts up with things when they're not going the way we feel, but also the kind of patience that endures and cracks on to see the thing through. Come on now. Amen. We need that. Now, the Lord has not only given us patience, therefore, but He's also given us His approval and His plan to do what we're doing. One of the reasons why we recognize four spiritual seasons is so that we can focus on certain things uh, during certain periods of time without neglecting the others. And we would already be in a, in a season that we call like a, the winter rest when we enter into rest. That's a focus on spiritual things 
whereby we, we would focus on worship anyway. Even though that's already a part of our plan, the Lord, prophetically, by His Spirit, has spoken to us to be established as a house of worship. And that every other value that we have will be developed in the matrix of a house of worship. That's, that's, that's the womb of life, is, it, is deep intimacy with God. And if we don't have that, it doesn't matter what we value about relationships, and we do the house church thing, we don't do the big, you know, th- th- that's all great, but those things won't be a- achieved authentically if we don't have the touch of God on us. We can plan ourselves into anything, but we can't plan ourselves into the reality of God. That can only come from God. And, and that anointing, that presence of God that enables us to have these authentic family communities that are, that are on mission and bearing fruit, that's, that comes from connecting with God. That comes from first having deep covenant with the Lord. The Spirit has put it upon us like an assignment. It is an absolute mandate that we would build an altar in our hearts, homes, and churches and call on the name of the Lord as a lifestyle. I mean build it and do it, and that's who we are. Not just taking ten minutes to sing a day. I mean bodies offered as living sacrifices on the altar of God, on fire. Praise God. Amen. We are Godward people. I want it to be that when people come into an environment where we are, of course, individually, but if you, if you visit one of the churches in a home and you come to a larger assembly like this, even if the texture is different, there's, not, there's no spiritual leaks. There's a thickness of, of a sense of God. And that happens not just when we ask God to come, but when we open our, the gates to Him and close the gates to everything else. And when our hearts are focused on Him, And when our minds are focused on Him, that creates the sense of awe that you read about in the book of Acts. God's the one who does it. But we steward it. We steward our worship to Him. So I'm calling us to worship again and again and again. And I'm really encouraging the men to lead your homes in in worship. Build an altar and call on the name of God. I mean, men need encouragement to take spiritual initiative. Just like women need encouragement in 1 Corinthians 2, to be modest in the way they clothe themselves and cover their bodies. So I would encourage that also. That those, just, those two things go together. The men are encouraged to lift their holy hands up in prayer in every place. So the women tend to be a little bit more naturally given to the Lord and feeling Him, uh, His Spirit, his, you know, sensing Him, being very sensitive to that. I'm not saying that women don't need discipline either, but they tend to be more given to that while the men can sometimes be challenged in those areas. So Paul says, I want the men lifting up holy hands everywhere. That means every city where you have jurisdiction, Timothy, I want the men creating the spiritual atmosphere. Not because the women don't have a part, they do, but if the men don't take the the initiative and leadership, then we're not going to have a healthy family. So that's one thing I want to encourage the men. Really get on uh, your, your, your task of building an altar of worship in your own heart and home. Yeah, this is a call to worship. But here's another thing about that. Okay, I'm putting these two things together. The bit about patience and the bit about the Lord calling us to be a house of worship. I feel recognized by God as a work that He would speak and say, 
this is next in building this work. I don't want you planning outreaches right yet. That's coming. I don't want you just trying to put together some more house churches. That's coming too. That's on my year list of goals, whatever that's worth. <clears throat> and that's all worthwhile. Guys, those things are not just important. They're crucial to who we are. But God's saying, before you invest fully in those things, this is what I want first established before me. I want you to have the spirit of worship. I want you to be God-centered, God-oriented, God-word people in everything. That there's a sense of Godwardness among you. That you understand who I am. There's a sense of awe. You, 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 you recognize and are fascinated by my beauty. You study my character. You worship me. You, you vocalize it back. You orient your whole life, whether it be personal discipline issues with digital media or it's your, uh, your career ambition. Everything's just oriented on maximizing the glory of God. If we don't have that established, who gives a rip what else we establish? It'll be done in the arm of the flesh. If we're not broken to everything else by the awesome love of God. Just one person say amen to encourage my little heart. Thank you. Therefore, I feel recognized by God. I feel our work has been recognized by the Spirit. That He would say, this is what I want. And say it so clearly and so passionately. So, for me, this is, I want you to feel covenant obligation with the Lord. If you feel called to be a part of who we are, and even if you don't, God has you here for a reason to hear this. There is a, in this work, for me, I'm in covenant with the Lord. No one even noticed. Don't worry about it. <laughs> See, the, I'm telling you, the Spirit is urgently crying out to us. Deep from His deep, He's calling to our deep. We should have a sense that's organic, that is love-inspired. It's all about the seeds of love in our heart. It's all about the love of God being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That love is covenant love. It has mutual obligation. It's not the typical, it's we, do, we, do, we, we do the church thing as it's convenient to us. It's family, with God first as Father, and then His people as brothers and sisters. That is the New Testament. And so I want you, and I encourage you, to take hold in your heart to this, this mandate from the Holy Spirit in covenant with Him that we're going to be a house of worship. That we are, in fact. And we're going to be. So, in, in as much as the Lord has given us patience to build this and has spoken so clearly that this is an assignment, that we're to invest in unique ways, and my guess would be through the next season of prayer. So that would be um, over the next five or four to five months or so. Something like this. We, we really want to build this house of worship. And it, and it comes first with the quality in our hearts and then equipping one another and dedicating ourselves to worshiping God, heeding the kind of words that Lubo gave. Okay, you get the idea. So along those lines, uh, I, have, I have four main points that I'm going to derive from John chapter 4. Four points for chapter 4. Didn't do that on purpose. Just another confirmation. Alright, just kidding about that. But, um, I, I want to identify what, what Jesus uh, means by worshiping God in spirit and in truth. 
And so I think what I'll do is I'll read this passage from the beginning of the chapter, not all the way through. We'll get to a certain point. I'll I'll read a, a lengthy portion, then I'll come back to it here and again when I'm making my main points. John chapter 4, again, I feel like the Lord truly directed me to speak from this passage today. He was dealing with me a few weeks ago, and he said, look, you talk about these things when you teach your class on authentic church. You talk about things being done in a certain order. So now I'm telling you to do it in that order. And you put at the foundation, John 4 kind of worship. So do this here. Now you're not just talking about it with students. Now you want it to take on the flesh of an actual work. So do that. So when I teach John 4 to our students about authentic church, you know, at fire school, um, I'm explaining to them that this is foundational because Jesus, (laughs) how'd you like that? Jesus, Jesus is the foundation of the church. So how, amen, how can we be truly built on the foundation that is He Himself if we're not worshiping Him? If the foundation is a person, then our connection with that person is our foundation. Right? He's a person, or He's not, he's not a literal block of stone that goes in the ground. He's a person. So if the church, an authentic church is built on the foundation of Jesus, then there must be a sense of the awe of Jesus and connection with Him. Worship that keeps us connected to the foundation. Worship is the practical foundation of the church. If there's not an awe of God and a, and a connection with Him and an appreciation for His beauty and a life utterly geared toward Him, then we don't have an authentic church. And we won't be able to create our other ideals. Get the idea? John 4 is the foundational, classic, biblical passage on what worship is. The rest of the Bible is full of many important uh, instructions and examples uh, and, and, and other kinds of material about what worship is and doing it. I mean, we have the entire book of Psalms, even in the law, the whole establishment of tabernacles, temple, priesthood, sacrifices. People like, you know, heroes of the faith who build altars and call on the name of the Lord. Noah and Abraham and whatever else. Paul, speaking of being living sacrifices, now over in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12. Of course, the passages that we read last time we got together, that the Lord is burning on our souls from Revelation 4 and 5 and other prophetic apocalyptic passages like that, where God is seen in His beauty and people respond. Those are all awesome passages, stories, instructions, prophetic encounters that have to do with worship, and it's all important. But when the Master Himself, Jesus, tells us what worship is, there's your foundation to everything else. And we have that here in John chapter 4. And where is Jesus? He's in an obscure town, a controversial city, because it's a part of a region that's controversial in terms of Jewish people. And he's speaking not only with a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. So he's as far off the beaten social path as a a Jewish male can get. And it's in that context, speaking with a Samaritan woman, that he establishes the definition of worship. It's extraordinary irony. The call of God for true worship extends to anyone who's willing. And 
And not only that, but he's pursuing a genuine worshiper who will refresh his divine heart in someone that has been totally rejected by the Jews, both religiously and socially, and then by her own people socially because of her moral life. And Jesus is still seeking authentic worship. We are not qualified for authentic worship by any of the things that qualify people in human sight. We're qualified for true worship by spirit and by truth. It doesn't matter who we are in the sight of men. It matters only who we are in the sight of God. John chapter 4. So, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I'm going to make comments as we go, and then I'll come back to my points here. Here's one of my famous pauses. He had to pass through Samaria to get to Galilee. Some people talk about how Jews tended to go around Samaria because they hated Samarians. Sometimes they went around. Usually they just went through, frankly. History tells us that they still preferred the shorter distance, even though they hated the Samaritans. They wouldn't avoid it. They'd go through it because it was a shorter route. Jesus had to go through there geographically, but he still understood it was the providence of God that he did so. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There comes a woman of Samaria. And in John's typical irony, the way that he writes narrative, he's very practical while you know, speaking of the, the human element. Jesus is tired. We're about to hear that he's thirsty. We also know that he's hungry. John loves to give details like this, but also he loves to say it with a little twinkle in his eye that there's a deeper meaning. Now here comes a woman. You're about to find out this is typical for her to come at an odd part of the day to draw water it's the sixth hour. It's in the Middle East, high noon. It's the hardest part, hottest part of the day. That's not when you come out to lug a yoke of water buckets as a woman back and forth. But you do if you don't have social interaction with the other ladies who are going to come out in the early part of the day or the late part of the day where it's not as hot, not as difficult to get your water. Because she doesn't have interaction with them because she's a loner because of her history morally. And Jesus just happens to be there for her. So there just happens to come this woman of Samaria, and it just so happens she has no idea. She's got her little, whatever it is, her yoke with her water buckets, whatever it is, whatever the contraption is that she's using. Uh, and, and yet she's about to make history. She has no idea. She's about to become the, the evangelist that takes her whole town down to Jesus. And she has no idea. She's just an outcast coming to get water. There comes a woman of Samaria. I love the beauty of the sovereignty of God engineering circumstances amid the most ordinary circumstances to achieve his purposes. And the appreciation of that sovereignty is one of the basic elements of worship. Part of our worship will include looking for God in our midst in the ordinary. 
and stop categorizing life so harshly. Now we're at church, now we're at work. Da, 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 da. Hence, you know, I'm sure a large purpose for your word, Jacob. Is God saying, look, let's integrate life here. This is part of what worship is. Burn it all with the fire of God and let it melt together. And I mean, you know, you could see God's beauty in a tree, but you're also looking at God. How, what is he doing around us today? Well, this woman, the reason why she's here is because she's morally loose. And it just, it's, it's the, she always comes at this time when she needs water. Don't read into it. Actually, worshipers are sensitive. You never know. God may be acting. This, it could be that this lady who's at this well for all the wrong reasons, she's here today in order to produce a chapter in the Gospels. You never know. Could be. You understand where I'm coming from. And then this next extraordinary moment that again is so mundane on the surface, but in the deep it means everything. She comes to draw water and Jesus says, give me a drink. Out of his human desire to quench his thirst, we hear God's cry to us, I desire your worship. Refresh me. I don't need your worship to survive, but the way I'm made up, I'm loved. And to say God is made up of something is poor language, but I'm a little human and my theology is limited. God in his essence is a covenantal loving person. Worship refreshes his heart. Not because he was discouraged or depressed. It's just because he is who he is. He loves and longs our worship. Our worship so much so that he put himself in the capsule, in the real human life of a man that could experience thirst so he could live the metaphor of desiring our worship. Give me something to drink. And by the way, when he does that, he crosses and violates every social rule of his day. which is a hint about other elements of what worship is. It speaks to us of Jesus' willingness to break our rules, to establish his own, so to speak, with his covenant. But it also speaks of an important element to worship. It has to do with relationship with one another. This is a Samaritan woman. And she recognizes the social taboo of speaking with her. You understand that? And Jesus is master at understanding the will of God and living within his providence. And so what he does is he takes the social violations that he apparently made and makes them essential to true worship in spirit and truth. If you're not willing to break the borders that society creates for dividing people, then you're not worshiping in the spirit. That's what he's saying. So give me something to drink. It says in verse 8, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So there is another uh, reference to physical need. We have food and drink. Right? Just, sorry, contrasts, thinking of the narrative. Jesus just got done speaking to Nicodemus about water. Those who are born of God, if you want to see the kingdom, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. So here you got water and this great religious authority. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Now here's this little Samaritan woman. It's Jesus, same amount of value, still talking about water. It's an interesting, an interesting little uh, 
detail of the narrative. Life lessons from John. And the need for food and drink. The need for food and drink is a metaphor of worship. What do you think about that? Our built-in desire of and need for food and water is a parable for worship. He's saying third row. <laughs> okay, worship is not worship is not just uh, an illustration of you know looking at something beautiful, like a beautiful portrait. It can be. It goes deeper than that. Worship is a basic need to human life. The disciples are going to get food, and Jesus needs water, and that becomes the metaphor for what worship is. It illustrates our absolute need for God. And that, that um, when we seek to fulfill our deepest hunger and thirst for God, with God Himself, that is worship. Or I should say that's true worship. Because any time we try to satisfy the appetites of our hearts, that is worship. It could be true or false, but it is worship. Right? The heart is a hungry organ of our body. It's more hungry than our bellies. The heart even uses the filling of our bellies to satisfy its own emotional needs. And the reason why God even made us to eat and drink and the reason why Jesus is using these metaphors of hunger and thirst, particularly thirst, both come into play here. The reason why he uses them is to show what true worship is. It's when the, the hungers and the appetites of your heart, you choose to, to have them satisfied with God alone. That's worship. That is, by the way, there's my whole message. I'm just going to detail it out. That is true worship. When God becomes our absolute satisfaction. You could sweat while you're singing. For three hours straight, be the biggest worshiper ever, and walk out that door and fill your heart's hunger with everything but God. You weren't worshiping; you were singing and sweating. When we come together, which we should do dynamically, whether we know the song or not, and we worship with all of our hearts, it should be an expression and a moment of thanks to God for being the satisfaction to us that He is the rest of the week. Praise God forever. So says he, give me something to drink. Because the disciples went to buy food. So the Samaritan woman in verse 9 says to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he turns the tables. Suddenly she's the thirsty one. He changed, he changed that order quickly, didn't he? So she has a problem. With, well, no, you're breaking these social rules. You, you can't be doing this. I mean, it's hard for us to feel the social and emotional shock of this. Even if she were a clean person, a, a, a Jewish male, both of those social identities playing strongly together in this narrative. A Jewish male, even to a nice girl, breaking the social barrier and just speaking to her when she's alone and he's alone, 
that's unheard of. Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans anyway. They're the descendants of the half-breeds after the northern kingdom was uh, exiled. Some of the, the Israelites were left there, and then the Assyrians planted some of their own people there, and they mingled in with these Jews to make this half-breed sort of uh, uh, people group that were known during Jesus' day as Samaritans. And they, they sought to worship the one true God, but they didn't accept the whole Bible. They, they had only the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they worshipped on a different mountain. That was their holy mountain. So they had a different temple, a different mountain, a somewhat different Bible in a sense. In a sense, you know, part of the Bible was theirs. And they believed other funny things. So they weren't true Jews ethnically. They weren't true Jews religiously. They were defilement to a true Jew. And then you have these other social issues of the man and the woman. And she, the, the shock is deep. He's already arrested her attention. What are you doing? You don't do this. Even if you're not prejudiced, you don't break these unspoken laws. You just don't. Even if you would like to, you just don't do that. And he, he immediately uses it as an open door. Now listen to this. To touch a need in her heart for knowing her own identity that goes deeper than the ways she already identifies herself. I'm a woman of Samaria. Jesus says, actually, you're much more than that, and that's what I'm trying to touch. And if you knew who it was speaking to you, you'd start all right out asking him some questions. Give me what you have. Because I'm not alive. That's what you'd be saying. That's what Jesus is saying she would be saying. I'm not alive. Can you please make me live? The the water of the well doesn't give her sustenance. Neither does her religion. Neither does her identity as a Samaritan. Neither does her identity by itself as a woman. None of these things makes you a living, meaningful, substantial, powerful human being. Only God does that when you drink of His Spirit through His King that's Messiah, who just happens to be the thirsty man standing in front of you. But we'll get to that later. Nonetheless, if you knew the gift of God, which is part of what we, why we worship, because we appreciate redemption, and who it is who says to you, that's the other part, really they're mingled together, but it's the person of Christ himself that attracts us. If you knew who it was who's saying, give me a drink, you'd start asking him for a drink. Because I'm identifying in you a thirst, Jesus is saying, that you're not aware of. And for us, we have to be honest and courageous to admit that we have a thirst deep inside of us that we may have covered with other things and don't even realize how thirsty we are and don't realize how abundant in living water He is. We may not realize it even though we're already in. And again, those who insist in our day that you already have it, you already have it, don't ask for what you already have, you already have it, you already have it. I say, yes, it's exactly like Josh Waltman prophesied. These things we already have, but experientially, we often don't. So if you want to celebrate all that you have, fine. Celebrate by dunking your whole head underneath the river and drinking deeply and getting satisfied. Don't just talk about that the river's in your backyard. Jump in the thing. So she takes him literally, because living water can mean moving water, which was sometimes more desirable to get water out of a river that moves, rather than just sitting there, possibly getting stagnant 
or other unclean elements to it. The living water was moving water, and it was often more desirable. So she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Of course, she means what she means on the surface. John is saying, you hear the echoes deep and all that? Yeah, okay. Verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? In other words, this was his water source. He's the big patriarch of our religion. So you're saying there's some living water source. Well, where is it? See, life for them, religion and water and society, it was all one. It was all all one politic, like life should be for us in the kingdom. Politic means corporate life. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. So you drink, you become a resource to other people. When you're satisfied, you can touch other people. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. So he is reeling her in. She's still thinking superficially that he has access to a water source that would be more convenient and beneficial for her. Well, he means something entirely different, but it's okay, because let me tell you something. Even though he broke these spiritual rules, uh, excuse me, social rules, and he stepped over these boundaries, he has engaged her, and she has engaged him. And they are now locked in and engrossed in a conversation that's not going to end until he says it's over. They are engrossed with one another. He is delighting in the process of taking a virtual, pagan, immoral woman who has less spirituality than, than he probably has in the tip of his pinky nail. He's delighting in taking her and making her one of the most powerful human beings of his day. He likes that. He's engrossed. And so is she. Who is this quirky, odd, young, healthy Nazarene who's breaking every rule and does not seem to have lustful ambition with me. This man is really authentic. He's speaking in riddles. He's engaging. Something's happening here that's touching me in places I've never been touched. They're engrossed in one another. It's a picture of worship. And so she says, well, I want this water then. You've got my attention. Sir, give me this water. Surely some sarcasm is mixed in this. Give me some of this water so I don't have to come here. I mean, she, I think she's absolutely delighted, but I also think she's, she thinks she's dealing with someone who's a little bit eccentric. So she asks for the water, and he says, go get your husband. What does that have to do? With the water. Well, it's everything to do with it. His response, go get your husband, is precisely the answer to her question, give me the water. For two reasons. I'd like to share with you. Nah, I'm not going to share them with you. 
How is Jesus answering her directly? Some of you know, you may have heard me say it. Others who don't, you're not going to get the answer. We're going to move on. No, I'm going to give you the answer. You don't even care. You're like, whatever. Just go on or give us the answer. First of all, we know the living water is experiencing God in the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he does is he introduces the fact as he goes on. I should read this. Forgive me. Let me fast forward. Okay. Go call your husband in verse 16. Verse 17, the woman answers and says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. When she asks for living water, he gives her a word of knowledge. He demonstrates the Spirit. And he says, you want living water? This is what I'm talking about. This is the realm I live in. I know you. I know your history. I know your life. I can see it in the Spirit. So she asks for water. He demonstrates the Spirit. He demonstrates the living water. Introducing her to a whole new realm of possibilities in God. Really the only realm of possibilities in God. But for her, another realm. And then the second thing he does is he identifies the area of her heart that is thirsty, that she's been satisfying on other things. You, you are meeting your needs as a human. You are giving yourself value by giving yourself wrongly to men in an unclean, unhealthy, sinful way. You're doing it. Not only is that sin, because you're violating the rules of God, but it's sinful because you're finding your heart satisfaction in something that is beyond and besides the living water. So she asks for living water. She says, okay, number one, I'm going to identify the area where you're crying out for it and you don't realize it. And number two, I'm going to demonstrate I'm from a whole other place, my dear, a whole other place. So suddenly she gets a little spiritual here and recognizes spiritual things. The gift of discernment starts to kick in. And the woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now remember, just as the Jews despised the Samaritans ethnically and religiously, so did the Samaritans despise the Jews. So not only is it surprising that Jesus is speaking to her at all, but it's surprising that he's prophesying. She's saying, whoa, okay, you're a prophet. A Jewish prophet. Whoa, okay. I'm surprised by that. I'm surprised that this eccentric Jew is prophesying to me from outside my comfort zone. I've met a prophet who's a Jew. That's a contradiction in my thinking, she's, she's probably saying. So that, that confusion then breeds verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's saying, I don't know, how are you a prophet when we have this conflict? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. In other words, while we're getting to the real thing, you Samaritans do have it wrong. And we Jews do have it right. But I'm about to obliterate that conflict with something greater than both. Doesn't mean God's replacing Israel. He's not. They have an everlasting covenant. They're meant to be messianic. But he is saying you don't have to be on that mountain in Jerusalem or any other certain place to worship God truly. And you don't even have to have a certain ethnic background. 
What you need is faith in this Messiah and to drink deeply of His Spirit. Verse 23, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Okay, let's let's split a hair here. The Father is not seeking true worship in spirit and truth. He's seeking people who worship Him in spirit and truth. He wants that kind of people who do that sort of thing. He doesn't just want the experience of you worshiping Him at certain times. He wants the people who are that kind of people. There's a subtle but important difference. It's, it seems like we're splitting a hair, but it's like, it's like, a, it's like a big thing. <laughs> I could see it in my mind, but I couldn't think of the word. What's the... Canyon. It's a canyon. That's what I saw. A canyon. Not a canon. A canyon with a Y. It's a massive amount of mountain. Dug into the earth. Big. Worship is not just a moment. He's after the people themselves to be worshipers. His covenant people who are characterized by worship. Characterized by genuine satisfaction with Him. The woman said to him, excuse me, verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Don't you love that? Let's read that again. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Interesting how quickly she's recognizing these these, these spiritual issues. He, as soon as he demonstrates the Spirit, she says, okay, you're a prophet. Okay, I got a question about worship. Okay, let's talk about the kingdom. Messiah's coming. The one called Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. And he says, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or... Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This isn't the Messiah, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. In verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? We're always on that superficial level. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he says there, the harvest is now, and then the whole town of these Samaritans come to visit Jesus. This, this image of her leaving the water pot, of course, says two things. Metaphorically, it's saying she's found her true satisfaction. She no longer needs the well. And secondly, it's showing that she is in haste. She has met Jesus. He's revealed himself to her. And she's become satisfied with what he has given her. And that will now transcend her identity as an immoral woman, as a, as a, as a woman, and as a Samaritan. It will transcend that. She's now fulfilling exactly what Jesus said. If you drink this water, not only will you be satisfied, but you'll be You'll be springing up to eternal life. She immediately goes to translate what she's experienced to other people. Worship 
turned into mission organically. And it's easy to say it, but I'm telling you, when we are satisfied with God, something flows out of us to give the same thing to others. Her satisfaction with God was so genuine that she gave other people a genuine experience with Jesus before they met Jesus. She influenced them to come down and talk to this young man. And once they did, they said to her, you read later in the story, they said, we came because of what you said, but now we see for ourselves this is the Christ. And they stayed with him. He stayed with them two days. You see, her, her experience with the Lord was so authentic, she was able to influence people and pull them in. And so authentic was her experience that once they met him, she didn't have to be there anymore to maintain their relationship. Because what she gave them was real, so they could connect to the Lord on their own and not go through her. That's how effective her testimony was. Our testimony is weak. We need the hotshot superstar to identify with God. And I'd say, if that person's ministry were so effective, we wouldn't need him so much. He would lead us to drink of Jesus' waters ourselves. That would be a good leader. And Jesus is that kind of leader, and he creates those kinds of leaders. And this woman became that kind of leader. And why was she that kind of leader? Because she was satisfied with him. She didn't need to be the one that they were dependent upon, because she was satisfied. That's the result of true worship. It makes people whole. And when they're whole, they can operate in the Spirit without agenda. Come on now. That's the fruit of true worship. And that's good leadership. That's why New Testament leadership is strong. But it's healthy. It's strong so it can create people who depend on the Lord themselves that depend on the leadership. Man, there's so much. Can you, can you see at least a little bit of why God says, first, establish yourselves as worshipers of me. Before we move on, you want to talk going further in your relationships, developing churches, mission, evangelism, discipleship. All of those things are a million percent crucial. But if you don't have the spirit of worship, you won't create these other issues. You have to, you have to be broken in your satisfaction with everything else and satisfied with me. So, in partial closing, what I mean is, let me just give you the list of the four things, uh, a few of which I've already hinted at, but now I'm going to give them to you so that you can conveniently write them down on your notepads, iPads, iPhones, or other devices that you should be careful with. Or just listen closely. I see some of you memorizing what I'm saying. I know who you are. You're memorizing. You, 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 you won't get lost. No, you don't have to write it. You can even listen to, the, to the, uh, the recording later. What is worshiping God in spirit and in truth? What is it? How do we do it? I'm going to give you four fairly fast things. That's four fairly fast. That's a triple... F sound, four fairly fast. And by the way, um, yeah, forget that. Stay focused. All right. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? First thing is engage. Engage your heart. Engage God in worship. Engage. Shake everything off that hinders you. Focus. Just do it. Say, how does that have to do with spirit and truth? Because Jesus says that God is spirit. He is spirit, which means we must worship Him in spirit. What does that have to do with engaging? The very nature of God is that He's spirit, which means our interior must be engaged. 
Because that's where our spirit is. So if he's spirit, the only way to worship him is to engage him, who is spirit, with our spirit. Our interior, our emotions, our affections, our concentration. That's on the inside. You can do this outwardly without doing it inwardly. We should activate outwardly. We're physically made to worship, but it doesn't mean anything if the two are disengaged or we're just sitting there, standing there. One of the things that requires to be true worshipers is courage to engage, to get past every wall and just worship. Mature worshipers worship. They're not dictated by their environment. They're powerful on the inside. They're they're dictated by the call to worship. So they engage. They snap in. That's what it means to worship in spirit. It's one of the four I'm going to give you. Because if if God is spirit, then he requires our our, our interior engaged with him. That is worship. Amen. I mean, you, you know how it is. Sometimes you're a little distracted. Sometimes you're just waiting for other people to carry you. It's like, let's stop doing that. We're not going to grow if we're that way. We have to be spiritual people. We have to engage. We're called to be worshipers. That means get with the program. Get rid of the attending mentality. And come around the throne of God and worship. Engage. It's one of the it's one of the ADD effects of our digital generation. Like you got to be entertained. Oh, this one's over. Oh, okay. All this aside, King Jesus, you are awesome. You are worthy. Engage. That's worship. Do it. Sometimes the key to doing something is doing it. What are we waiting for? I'm not saying this applies to you. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just asking the question rhetorically. Engage. Just like in a conversation. Some of you may have experienced talking with someone where you could tell they weren't really paying attention. They were even looking at your face and you could see the distance. You could even see them fighting to try to pay attention. And they're not. We used to have a friend many, many years ago in a state far, far away who would look you right in the eyes and you knew he would, and he'd always say the same thing when he wasn't paying attention. I forgot what the word was. Do you remember? Really? 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 In other words, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. You could see him thinking. You know, he had this business he was always talking about, thinking about that. Really? 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 We're not, do you, yeah, so anyway, so, you know, then I, uh, I, I, I got off my motorcycle, I, I, I joined a, a different club, and I uh, did about a million drug busts a day, and uh, got it all on video. You want to see my videos of drug busts? Really? Really? Yeah, I flew to the moon the other day. I still have the moon in my head. The moon's in my head. The moon's in my head. Did you know that? Really? Really? Huh. Here you go. Huh. I remember that. Huh. huh. Yeah, the moon's in my head now. Did you know the moon's in my head? The moon's not in the sky. The moon's in my head. Huh? Really? Engage, man. Worship is heart-to-heart connection. The moon lives in my head and turns into a blue elephant every Tuesday. Comes out of my ear to eat cheeseburgers. Really? Really? Huh? Really? I, I have a friend currently that I sometimes play that little game with, and I'll say something like that, and he'll say his word that he's not 
shows you it's not really what it's saying. And then he goes, ah, and then he, you know. Anyway. Amen? I would think I'd get a more hearty amen after that point. Oh, amen! No, oh, man, are we on that? We are all about that point, Bob. That point you just made, engage, eye contact, but also in the heart. Yeah, amen. Oh, man. Okay, focused energy is engaging. And this has to do with truth, too. Because truth, you know, in John's Gospel, is, is Christ-centered. He is the truth. But for us, it's not just believing that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. It's engaging Him as such. It's being radically and practically Christ-centered. Not just theologically. This woman was engrossed with this young man. She, she knew more about the Messiah before she got saved than some, some Christians do after. Because she was so engrossed with where he was taking her in the congregation. She was worshipping in truth, not only because of her own honesty, Jesus says, but because she was Christ-centered. Even before she was fully in the covenant. She was engrossed with this man. Just to be theologically correct doesn't mean we're worshipping in truth. To be radically and practically Christ-centered. That is to worship in spirit and truth. So that, the first point, engage. Engage. The second point is this. The second way to worship in spirit and in truth is to be loyal. To live loyally to the new covenant community. Yes, it's true. It is one of the it's one of the foundational elements to this passage. The whole issue of Jews and Samaritans and then, quote, such people. The people who worship in spirit and truth. That is one of the fundamental issues to this passage. In other words, okay, I'm not saying that when, just when you relate to someone you're worshiping God. I'm saying Jesus cut through all social barriers. Out of his fear of the Lord. He sought fellowship with people no one else would accept. Now, I don't mean just outcasts. I mean, he wouldn't be accepted. Not just that they're not accepted. He wouldn't be accepted if he crossed those barriers. But he did so anyway, out of respect for God. I'm not saying he did not have a genuine love for them. He most certainly did. And that should drive us toward one another. But if that's not flaming and we're not full of the affections toward one another to draw us closer into the kind of covenant community that God has, we should, still be, we should still be seeking one another out in relationship out of respect for the God who takes our relationships with one another personally unto Himself. Sometimes if I hear one of my children cutting down one of my other children, I, it, it's painful in two ways. One, because you know you, you criticize someone else's character. It's like a part of me is in that kid. I feel that. And then this other kid is the one doing it. And that's painful, the fact that they're doing it. So I'm feeling in me their conflict. Or I may feel if there's a division, like some kind of one kid treating another like an outcast, or three or four treating one like an outcast. Something we don't experience, but if, I were, if one kid were to just be an outcast from the family because of the other kids, that would hurt me myself. 
I would feel the pain as if it's happening to me. You know, Jesus told Saul on the Damascus Road, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting other people. Oh, you're persecuting me. The way you relate to them, I feel. And it's out of tremendous disrespect for my royalty and my love that you would harm them. I'm just letting you know. The fear of the Lord will create these churches. Not just trying to have churches. Okay, we may not be prejudiced toward people that are in this room with us, but there's other kinds of barriers we need to overcome out of respect for the Lord. Not just feeling we've accomplished something by forgiving someone. And certainly not entertaining the kinds of things that we deem important but that divide us from one another. The respect of the Lord should dictate the way we relate to one another and will give us the ability to relate outside as well. We cannot merely attend in this sort of work. Authentic house churches cannot be created just by trying to relate to one another a little bit or meeting in a different way than others happen to sometimes. These kinds of house churches are created by the spirit of worship. That's our priority. Worship, in some sense, creates the family of God. Because God creates God's family. And we access God's flowing spirit through worship. The third element of worshiping in spirit and truth. Now, notice, this whole thing, the social issue I just gave you, that's entirely in the fabric of that John chapter 4. It's the underlying issue that Jesus uses as a platform, along with the bodily needs to eat and drink, were these social taboos that created his platform to talk about worship. So I'm making this stuff up. Number three, to worship in spirit and truth is to worship in fellowship with the person of the Holy Spirit. When this woman asked for the living water, Jesus demonstrated the Spirit with supernatural knowledge. He demonstrated the Spirit. So, that's telling us the Spirit should be demonstrated in all of our worship. Well, what does that mean? Like, if we need to have words of knowledge and such? Well, that's part of it. The whole idea was that Jesus, he was just a man of the Spirit. To come up with this supernatural knowledge was just as natural for him as it was to drink and eat what he was given in hospitality. He was just a person of the Spirit. So everything about our lives, whether we're gathering together or worship or not, should be touched by the quality and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. We have to be daring and get into the realm of the supernatural. I don't know whether you're putting a song service together. Pray about it. Get revelation and insight and leading. But that's, that's only one part of it. The people should be gathering together with a sense of God asking and then sensing, what are you saying? Where are you going with this? Can you imagine if 15 people did that with 100% energy, let alone 60 or whatever, 70? If everybody just was their concern, God, what is the current of the water and the wind now, right now? What's your heart now? That's worship. To be people of the Spirit is not just developing skills, it's being concerned about what's in God's heart. That's what it means that David was a man after God's own heart. He cared what God was up to, what he thought, what he valued, and what he was saying right now. Jesus is just aware of this. He's in the realm of the Spirit. That's how he has this, this access to the supernatural knowledge. 
Remember, God is spirit. So if you love God, you love spirit. Being in the spirit is an act of love. It's not just being cool or being spiritually uh, credible. I got gifts. I could do this. I could do. If God is spirit, then I want to be a man of the spirit or my worship isn't true. It's funny, now there's all this talk about strange fire making charismatic phenomena, false worship. It's actually the name of a conference in a book. False worship is now identified with charismatic worship. The opposite is true. It's strange fire if it's not in the Spirit. It's the whole point of what strange fire is. If I worship outside of the Holy Spirit, I'm offering God strange fire. If it's not charismatic, it's strange. As soon as she asked for the water, Jesus demonstrates a word of knowledge. Our worship, our songs, our singing, the moving of the gifts of the Spirit, the way we conduct ourselves outside, all of it is meant to be in the Spirit, and that's the way we relate to God. How else can we know Him? We can't grasp Yeshua without the Spirit. Whew! And number four, as we've said, to worship in spirit and in truth is to be genuinely and deeply satisfied by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where we again muster the courage to ask God to satisfy our hearts with Himself in all the areas where we seek satisfaction elsewhere. Whether it be overt sinfulness in the engaging of unclean images on a computer, whether it be a bad attitude that we hide behind socially, whether it be uh, stuffing our faces with food and drink, whether it be some other you know, rage or something subtle like wasting time or these little attitudes, the little foxes that spoil the vine. Whatever they are, what is satisfying our heart's desires that we're going to with addiction that we're not going to the Lord to drink deeply? That process of seeking to quench our thirst on the Lord is worship in spirit and in truth. As I tweeted earlier in the week, worship is the soul's quest to quench its thirst for God. It can, you could be worshiping God or you could be worshiping that UNC sign back there. As long as you're trying to quench that thirst of the heart, that's worship. It doesn't matter what you're worshiping. True worship is when we seek to quench our thirst for God with God. And that takes courage in some places because all of us have, all of us, all of us have had areas in our hearts that we have consistently satisfied elsewhere. Even if they're little things. But as the Spirit brings up those areas, the way Jesus brought up this area with the Samaritan woman, then the Lord can give us a gracious repentance where we turn away from the what Mike called earlier lesser lovers and experience God's love and God's truth in that area of our heart. But that will mean giving up areas of our heart and activities and habits of the heart that we've become addicted to. And we're not willing to give up very easily like the list of things I talked about, attitudes toward people, ways of responding socially that are unhealthy, in relationships that are unhealthy, rather than letting God be the satisfaction and I can just carry on. This is how important worship is. 
Worship isn't just clapping our hands and singing. It's deep satisfaction with God. We have met not many people who have a deep and absolute satisfaction with the Lord. It's a quality of life you cannot fake. People try all day, every day, in superficial Western religious circles. And we've all tried it to some degree. Everybody in this room, the tendency is there. But we have religion in the West predicated on doing God's stuff without being satisfied by Him. Then you have this gifted, amazing, influential, unbelievable, awesome, mega celebrity preacher that you find out has all this stuff going on when the, when the day comes to reveal it. What? I mean, that's not even like he was, you know, he bet on a horse once in a while. That was like aggressively pursuing severe defilement and while he's preaching and had, conducts this huge ministry. Worship is fairly important because it's what gives us satisfaction with God. So that all those issues are settled so that what we're, what we're publicly preaching, whether it's from a pulpit or we're sharing in a house church or we're, we're, we're going to the Sukkar to meet the, the villagers of Samaria to lead them to the Lord. We're doing it out of our own satisfaction with the one we're talking about. Does that make sense? Because there was a lot of loops in there. That's where mission comes to pass because we're, we're, we're speaking that was wah, wah, wah. we're speaking to people about someone with whom we are satisfied. He has become enough. Like Amy Carmichael when she's leaving for China. She, I don't know the exact quote, I don't remember it, but she's saying, with everything I'm leaving behind, she writes, I feel like I've died, but he has been enough. That's the foundation of true church. I don't care what your scheme is. I don't care if it's perfectly Pauline. That's a double P for you, so remember, perfectly Pauline, precious. I'll just call you precious. Make it three P's. Perfectly Pauline, precious. And it doesn't matter if we have it perfect and we just say all the right things. I've sat with house church folks before. They say, man, I'm like, man, God clearly gave you that revelation. Few people are saying things about family and all this. But there's an agitation about them. They're agitated. It's like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing, but they're not settled. You don't get the sense that they're walking with God. They just have a scheme that's different from everybody else. I'd rather, be, uh, I'd rather be doing the scheme of church wrong and have a walk with God than be doing the scheme right and not really know Him and have to complain about the way other people do church in order to find my identity. We, our foundation is satisfaction with God, which is what it means to be, wor- to, to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. And from that place, mission comes. Just like with the Samaritan woman, she took the whole city to Jesus based on her satisfaction with him. And how long could that entire process have taken? Sometimes in ancient stories, they'll give you like what you could read in two minutes, something that happened several years. But this, sounds, this story with Jesus sounds like one conversation. And however long it took her to go to that city, talk. I mean, several hours? Several hours, it seems from point A, when she's completely absorbed in her own sinfulness, but coming to get water, to point Z, when she brings a whole city to Jesus, because she's a satisfied worshiper? Could that have taken more than several hours, a few, four, whatever? The power of a true worshiper. Awesome. Engage loyalty to New Covenant community. Fellowship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And deep, genuine satisfaction with God. 
We drink of the abundance of your house, O God, and drink of the river of your delights. You've satisfied us as with, as, as with fat and marrow. Uh, in your light we see light. Praise God. Let's stand together. I'm hearing in my mind that it was an old Hosanna song, but it's taken from the Psalms. I'm not going to sing it. How great is your goodness. Isn't it taken from a psalm? How great is your goodness stored up for those who fear you. I guess I am just thinking of the song. No end to the kindness that comes to us to us each day. We count, we count on compassion in the shelter of your presence here. In, uh, hidden away, hidden from harm, how great your love. The thing I'm thinking of is how great is your goodness stored up for those who fear you. Josh quoted it earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Praise God. Father, we are satisfied with your abundance. And we thank you for this abundance that you offer to us. Lord, when the Samaritan woman asked or, or said to Jesus, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with, we realize that the well of Yahweh is deep. But you do have something to draw with because the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And so now we pray that you will guide us by your Spirit into the depths of God Himself. That we would find our life satisfaction and our very identity as individuals and as families, as a work of God with churches. That we would find ourselves, we would find our satisfaction in you. That, that it would be our delight not to do our will, that that would not be satisfying, but that doing your will would be our satisfaction. With such depth, Father, the way Jesus experienced it, where the, the delight of doing your will, because you're so wonderful, is, is so utterly delightful and joyful, that it affects our emotions, and it even affects our bodies, where we don't feel as hungry and, and, and thirsty to crave the, the things of this world uh, as much as we did before because our hearts are so full of you. Without denying these other needs, Lord, we pray that they just wouldn't have the edge that they're not supposed to have because we're finding everything in you. And so we give you invitation now, as you've already taken your place, to challenge us, to identify things in general that we seek for satisfaction through prophecy this morning. We pray that you will continue to speak to us and challenge us in that way, in our closer relationships or just with you, to, to repent of, of the, the kinds of uh, sources of living water that are not sources of living water, and to turn all of that to you. Lord, teach us to be those who worship you in spirit and in truth. Bless your people. Pour out upon them, all of us, the spirit of grace and supplication for your sake, and build this work yourself through the spirit of worship, so to speak, as we yield to you. Jesus is King.